The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 6, Andrew Jackson, Part 1. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Welcome, friends, listeners, one and all. This is episode six of season two, and we are finally into the meat of the season. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Crash Course as much as I enjoyed making those episodes. If so, then I think you're going to totally enjoy um, the episodes that are coming up next. Again, as always, if you have any comments or questions, concerns, please email me. My info is sean at AmericanHistoryPodcast.com. You can also find me on Twitter at American Hiscast, and I look forward to hearing from you, so please don't be shy. All right, so on with it. Let's get into Andrew Jackson. Now, if there's any president from the 19th century who's controversial, it's Andrew Jackson. One of the best quotes about Jackson that I've ever seen is one given to us by James Parton, the, man, uh, the first man to write a biography of Jackson after Jackson died. In it, Parton says, quote, Andrew Jackson was a patriot and a traitor. He was one of the greatest generals and wholly ignorant of the art of war. A brilliant writer, elegant, eloquent, without being able to compose a correct sentence or spell words of four syllables. A democratic autocrat, an urbane savage, an atrocious saint. (laughs) Even when Jackson was alive, he was controversial. And as you can see in the years right after his death, all the way up to now, uh, he's still controversial even today. (laughs) Now, Robert Remini, a historian who specialized in the age of Jackson, wrote a three-volume biography of the former president, one which was somewhat controversial amongst historians in that it treats Jackson, according to at least one critic, as Jackson would have wanted to be seen. In other words, the works are quite flattering. Now, some have criticized the biographies as being old school, but the final volume did win the National Book Award in 1984, for whatever it's worth, should also mention that for all of its faults, um, if you take a graduate-level history course on the age of Jackson, I'd say nine times out of ten, you're probably going to end up reading uh, Remini. And so just a bit of biography, just in case you weren't familiar with Jackson. (laughs) He was born in um, Colonial Carolinas to a family of Scotch-Irish descent in 1767. His parents were Presbyterians who had immigrated from Northern Ireland just a few years earlier. Now, his exact birthplace is unknown, and his father died in a logging accident at the age of 29, just three weeks before Andrew was born. And so Andrew is a young man. um, You know, he didn't have his father there. But at approximately 13, he becomes a courier for the local militia, and he served at the Battle of Hanging Rock during the American War for Independence. And both Andrew and his elder brother, Robert, um, who were actually encouraged to join the militia by their mother, were captured by the British in 1781. And this is when Andrew's intense hatred for the British developed. As a prisoner, he refused to clean the boots of a British officer, and the punishment that he was given was to be slashed with a sword across his face. Um, 
or across his head, I should say, and his hands. And he had scars on his hand and um, on his head that he would carry with him for the rest of his life. Now, as prisoners, he and his brother ended up contracting smallpox, and they nearly starved to death. So you can probably see why he didn't really like the British much. Now, of course, he would survive all of this, and eventually he became a lawyer, qualifying for the bar in North Carolina in 1787. Now, Jackson, as a lawyer, was appointed to the Western District of North Carolina as a prosecutor, which is now Tennessee. And so off he goes on to the small town of Nashville and starts his life. Now, on the frontier, he's not only a lawyer, but he also begins a political career, and he prospers as a planter, a slave owner, and a merchant. By 1820, Jackson owned 44 slaves, eventually owning upwards of 150 slaves, which placed him amongst the elite. Far be it from whatever Hollywood has taught us through movies and stuff, um, the reality is if you owned over 100 slaves, you were definitely elite. That was not the common thing. Actually, anything over a couple of slaves um, put you in the elite. Um, not everybody was able to have anything like what Jackson had. Then there was uh, his service in the War of 1812. And while the U.S. Army suffered defeat after defeat, Jackson offered to lead an army of 2,500 volunteers to help the war effort. However, um, they were not called up for many months, something that Jackson believed was a slight against him because he had supported Burr and Monroe and not President Madison. And this is going to kind of be a theme um, in Jackson's life. He's going to see slights behind everything. And he's going to really go through life with this kind of chip on his shoulder. Um, but by January of 1813, Jackson and his men of volunteers, he had his army, and he led them to New Orleans to defend the city and the region against attacks from British and Indian forces. Now, this first stint in New Orleans didn't go very well. It's not the, the famous one yet. Um, eventually, he is ordered to dismiss his men and to turn his supplies over to the federal forces that are serving at New Orleans. Now, Jackson being Jackson, instead of dismissing his men, he ends up turning the, over the supplies, he follows orders, and then he marches the men back to Nashville, a grueling march in which numerous men fell ill. But one of the things that you could say about Jackson is that he paid to provision his men himself. And it was during this march that he was given the name Old Hickory due to his toughness. Now, once he returned to Nashville... His actions earned him widespread respect uh, throughout the state of Tennessee. Now, as you might recall, the War of 1812 did not go very well for the United States, especially in the beginning. Detroit surrenders fairly quickly. Um, the Royal Navy ends up blockading the coast from New York to the mouth of the Mississippi. And as, as if that's not bad enough, you've got Napoleon. Um, he's defeated in Russia. And so now the British are going to be able to kind of turn their attention um, to fighting the United States in North America. And you're also going to get the Creek Indians who are going to lead a uprising along the Alabama frontier. And they massacred hundreds of Americans at a place called Fort Mims, about 40 miles, give or take, north of Mobile. So all of this is kind of like the perfect storm for the Americans. Now, the Indians are being aided and supplied by both, actually, the British and the Spanish, each of whom has an interest in stopping the United States from expanding into their areas. 
Now, to make a long story short, because this isn't a podcast about the War of 1812, at least not yet, um, the governor of Tennessee dispatches Jackson and his men to go and subdue the natives. There's a series of engagements. Um, Jackson ends up defeating the Creeks at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend in March of 1814. There is a peace treaty that ends that part of the conflict, and it stipulates that two-thirds of Creek territory in Alabama will be ceded to the United States. It's Alabama and Georgia that will be ceded to the United States. Now, by the summer of 1814, the British are able to bring in veterans of the Napoleonic campaigns, and about 4,000 of those soldiers ended up attacking and burning Washington, D.C. However, this was the high watermark of that conflict, at least for the British. Um, they're not able to take Baltimore. Obviously, you know, you've heard the Star Spangled Banner. That's based on the Battle of Baltimore. Um, a fleet uh, and an army are dispatched to New Orleans, and those forces are just about ready to discover how, old, how tough Old Hickory could be. Dug in behind a ditch that stretched from the Mississippi to a swamp about a mile away, the Americans repulsed British attacks on January 8th, 1815. Now, the British suffered 2,000 casualties from these, uh, this engagement, while the Americans only lost about a dozen or so. Needless to say, the legend of Old Hickory was boosted by this overwhelming victory. Um, as Remini notes, the victory represented the first time the United States had demonstrated its will and capacity to defend its independence in a world hostile to its existence. And this is going to be important because from this point forward, Andrew Jackson is going to be wildly popular with a large segment of the American population. Now, in the aftermath of the war, Jackson remains in command of the army along the southern border, using his home, the Hermitage, as his command center. And he would be recalled by President Monroe to put an end to the raids to the, of the, that the Seminoles were conducting into Georgia and Alabama, after which they'd retreat to the safety of Spanish Florida. Now, part of the problem, at least in the eyes of the Americans, is the fact that the Indians did not respect the borders that were set up by white men. Jackson was a very aggressive general, as it was, and in part his orders gave Jackson permission to chase the Seminole across the border, if need be, and attack them in their own towns, even though those were in Spanish territory. At least Jackson believed that he, that was what Monroe had ordered. Now, the actual document is a bit vague, as one would probably expect when you're dealing with a politician. Uh, that way, if it works out, you, the president gets the credit. If it doesn't, well, then you can blame your general for having gone rogue. <laughs> now, like I said, Jackson was aggressive. He not only crossed the border, but he killed a number of uh, numbers of Seminoles. He burnt their towns, captured two British nationals whom he believed to be aiding the Indians, and these two men, a man, uh, men named Alexander Arbuthnot and Robert Ambrister, I hope I got those right, pronunciation there, um, they were executed, one by a firing squad and the other by hanging. But this was not enough for Jackson. He then went on and he captured St. Mark's and Pensacola, the seats of Spanish authority in Florida, and he handed them over to the United States. Now, the fallout from this action would affect events for decades. Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House of, and um, um, Representative from Kentucky, 
said he was horrified by the actions of Jackson and the Monroe administration. He attacked the latter for invading Florida and engaging in hostilities with the Indians and executing foreigners, all without a declaration of war from Congress. Clay, hoping to have the administration repudiate Jackson's actions, gave a speech in the House demanding Jackson be censured. Now, he was unsuccessful in this, but Jackson, one to never forget a slight, saw Clay as his enemy from this point forward. Now, oddly, John Quincy Adams, son of the second president and secretary of state, actually defended the actions of Andrew Jackson, not only within the administration, but with Spanish and British officials. He argued that Americans had suffered long enough because of the Span- uh, Spain's ability to control the movement of Seminoles into and out of the United States. Adams, with Spanish officials, was arguing that since they can't control the natives in their territory, uh, it's best for all involved if that land is then sold to the United States. So in February 1819, you get the adams onis Treaty in which um, Spain agrees to cede Florida to the United States, the western boundary of the Louisiana Purchase is agreed upon, and the United States inherits all Spanish claims to the Pacific Northwest. In return, the United States will assume claims of American citizens against Spain, which amounted to approximately $5 million. Now, by 1822, Jackson was ill. He had two bullets lodged in his body, and he was exhausted from years of military campaigning. Regularly coughing up blood, Old Hickory worried that he was on death's door. Deciding it was wise to rest, he spent several months at home recovering his health, And it was during this time that he started to turn his attention to national affairs, fretting over the corruption in the Monroe administration, and coming to despise the Second Bank of the United States as the cause of the Panic of 1819. And that, at least, he was, in my estimation, correct. Now, as Remini notes in his short history of the United States, there was a huge difference between the Republic in 1789, when George Washington was inaugurated, and in 1824, when Jackson ran for president. In the former, Washington took the oath of office wearing a powdered wig, knee breeches, silk stockings, and pumps with silver buckles, as well as a ceremonial sword. He could not have looked more British if he had tried. Now, while it is true that the American colonists had started to kind of develop their own identity, they were still very much, culturally speaking, English. However, in 1824, candidates wore trousers, shirts, neckties, Um, There were no powdered wigs. um, There was no ceremonial swords being worn by anyone. And so the differences weren't only in their dress, but in the way they actually behaved. Washington was an aristocrat from head to toe, and he acted that way. Andrew Jackson, one of the candidates, played up the part of being an ordinary citizen, a Democrat, even if he belonged to the upper class in Tennessee, even if he owned more slaves than any most 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 people could have ever dreamt of owning at that point. Now, another change takes place, and that was the death of what some referred to as King Caucus. I think I've mentioned it before, um, but in this election, Monroe did not name a successor, and only one party existed. So, by tradition, the Congressional Caucus would choose a candidate who would then be elected president. <laughs> now, objections against this tradition were raised, as the new democracy was starting to take hold. The main complaint being that it takes, it takes the election away from the people and it 
hands it over to a small group of politicians in Congress. Instead, a number of candidates were put forth by the state legislatures, and King Caucus dies. But, as someone famous once said, not so fast, my friends. King Caucus does have one last gasp of life in it, so to speak. The caucus did meet on February 14, 1824, and although only 66 members were present, um, William Crawford, the Secretary for the Treasury, uh, was nominated. He received 62 of the 66 votes. Two votes were for John Quincy Adams, one for Jackson, and one for Nathaniel Macon. Now, Henry Clay had his name thrown into the ring by his home state of Kentucky, and this would be the first of his many failed attempts to become president. Since the office of Secretary of State had long been seen as a stepping stone to the presidency, Massachusetts nominated John Quincy Adams. John C. Calhoun, another member of the cabinet, considered a run, but seeing as how most of his northern supporters favored Jackson, he stepped aside. Now, of course, Jackson, when compared to, say, Henry Clay or John Quincy Adams, had little experience in terms of public service. However, he did have a successful military career, and um, it was successful. Whether or not we w- agree with what he did today, it was successful, and it made him wildly popular. He won the popular vote, 152,000 votes, compared to Adams in second place with 115. Jackson also had the electoral edge, 99 to 84. The other two candidates, Crawford and Clay, garnered 41 and 37 votes apiece. Because no one had the required electoral majority, the election then went to the House of Representatives. Now, the 12th Amendment to the Constitution states that only the top three candidates in the Electoral College can be considered, so Clay is out. Now, Clay was quite popular with his colleagues in the House, and he would have, most likely, easily... uh, won that election, he would have definitely won it if it had gone to the House of Representatives and he was um, a choice they could have made. But instead, he is now in a position to decide the next president, to play kingmaker if you want, want to call it that. And so let's look at this from Clay's point of view. Jackson is out of the question. In his mind, the general is a warmonger, a would-be American Napoleon, a possible tyrant who ignores any law he doesn't agree with, so no. He will not do. Crawford, incapacitated from a stroke that he had suffered in the run-up to the actual election, is also not a realistic choice. That left Adams. Now, Adams and Clay were not the best of friends. They had clashed at, the, at Ghent when they were attempting to negotiate the treaty to end the War of 1812. However, both were nationalists. And Adams, not the most Jeffersonian of the Republican Party, would certainly endorse Henry Clay's American system. On Sunday, January 8, 1825, Clay visits Adams at his home, and over a conversation that lasted more than three hours, he made it clear that he would support Adams for president. Now, the meeting became publicly known, and rumors spread of a bargain being struck, which would see Clay named Secretary of State for having supported Adams. This is going to be called by Andrew Jackson the corrupt bargain. Now, the election in the House takes place on February 9th. There's a heavy snowstorm outside, um, so how's that for drama, right? Uh, Congress counts the electoral ballots, and of course, there is no clear winner. The Senate withdrew, and the House proceeded to pick the next president. 
each state delegation getting one vote. The choice was made on the first ballot, and surprise, surprise, John Quincy Adams receives the votes of 13 states, Jackson gets seven, Crawford four. Needless to say, Jackson is infuriated by the results. He argues that the will of the people has been overturned by Clay and Adams in their corrupt bargain, and then fuel is simply added to the fire when Clay was indeed appointed Secretary of State. Jackson, when he's talking about this incident, said, quote, so you see the Judas of the West, end quote. Um, now, remember, Clay was frequently referred to as the star of the West, and he goes on to say, um, so you see the Judas of the West has closed the contract and will receive the third pieces of silver, end quote. So Adams and Clay shrugged off the accusations, and they set to work trying to create a program they felt would advance the welfare of the people, a program that was quite like the American system. Unfortunately for Adams, his presidency is plagued now with increasing uh, sectionalism and the fracturing of the Republican Party. This event ended up creating the two-party system. Some political historians refer to it as the second-party system. The opposition, the Jacksonians, viewed the pair as having unlawfully plotted their way into power. Thus, when Adams, in his first annual message to Congress, requested a national university, the building of a road and canal system, the creation of a naval academy similar to West Point, and the development of an astronomical observatory, he was laughed at by members of Congress. Adams' response shows that he was still, in the end, operating under the old rules, believing it was the duty of government to govern for the people. And so here's a quote. Um, the great object of the institution of civil government is the improvement of the condition of those who are parties to the social contract, end quote. He then asks Congress to not be palsied by the will of their constituents. Yeah, he's basically falling right into Andrew Jackson's um, game plan here. Now, what the president seemed to be saying is to forget the will of the people, just as he and Clay had done when they struck their corrupt bargain and cheated old Hickory out of the presidency. Further, congressional enemies attacked the plan as outlandish, unconstitutional, and financially preposterous. The Jacksonians cried that only a corrupt government spawned from the monstrous union between what John Randolph called the Puritan and the Blackleg could propose such a nonsensical plan. I wonder what they would think of the federal budget today. Anyways, um, over the next few years, the differences between the nationalistic administration and its Jacksonian enemies would just grow. Uh, new parties were formed and the two-party system reemerges. Administration opponents, under the guidance of Martin Van Buren of New York and John C. Calhoun of South Carolina, took on the name Democratic Republicans, or Democrats, and they supported Jackson for president in 1828. They emphasized issues such as fiscal restraint and states' rights. The friends of Adams and Clay argued for a more active role for government. They came to be known as National Republicans and eventually Whigs. Thus, the era of good feelings passes into history, as does this episode. Uh, when we pick it up next time, we will look at the election of 1828 and see Jackson rise to the presidency, and we're also going to look at his first term in office. As always, please feel free to email me with any questions or comments that you might have. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. 
You can also find me on Twitter at American HisCast. Finally, please check out the website and all the sources used to create Season 2. There's quite a few. I've already got um, about maybe half of no, maybe not, about a third of them up there, and I'm continuing to add as we go. So please uh, go check that out. Maybe you'd like to read one of those books and get some more in-depth learning on that. Until next time, have a great day.